0: Hello, listeners. Welcome again to In With The Old. I'm Dr. Tim Howe, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Brian, how are we doing today?
1: I'm doing well. What's up, everyone? How are we all doing today? I'm excited for another Q&A episode, Tim.
0: Yeah, I am too. And uh, if you missed our, our last episode, we did our first Q&A episode answering questions uh, from you and answering other questions we thought were interesting as well. And uh, this is Q&A episode number two. We're going to be answering three questions today, and then next week's episode will also be a QA. and uh, a So as Brian mentioned uh, last week, if you have questions, we would love to answer those. And uh, you can email us at in with the old podcast at outlook.com. Send us your questions and we'd love to know what interests you about the Old Testament. But, Brian, we've got the questions in for today. And uh, and we're going to start with one that, that really is, is fascinating in a number of ways. And I want to kick it to you to start off with. Uh, our listeners are most likely know that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and a portion of the Old Testament is written in Aramaic. Uh, but as we think about the, the story of the Old Testament, here's the question for you. What language did they speak in the garden? And as a follow-up, does anyone still speak it? So let let's tee up and then hear what you have to say. What language did they speak in the garden?
1: It's such a fascinating question that I have a very <laughs> disappointing answer to. I don't know. And I'm pretty sure it's an unknowable uh, question. <laughs> now, I, I, I can't speak a little bit to it. It's almost yeah. certainly, and in fact, I will say it's certainly no language we currently speak, and it's most certainly not Hebrew. So oftentimes you can find commentators, church fathers, um, talking about Hebrew as this kind of divine language. And Tim, we will be talking about this in a future episode, actually. Stay tuned for series two, everyone. Um, But we'll be talking about Hebrew as a language, but it is just Mm. that. It's a language uh, of many that are spoken here on earth, and these languages are a consequence of the Tower of Babel. So before that, right, there's some universal language that all people spoke, uh, and you can be mad at the Babylonians, everyone, if you've ever had to take another language and learn to speak it, (laughs) because it's frustrating. But one of the reasons why I say we can know it's not Hebrew, even though you can find people that assume it was, Hebrew didn't exist that far back in history. So here's something interesting. I don't know if anyone's ever, uh, our listeners, if you sat down and thought about this, but the Bible is written in Hebrew, but that's because that was the language from the time in which it is written. Do you know how far back in history we have examples of Hebrew or even its precursor what we call Paleo or Proto-Hebrew? Well, we only have written examples of this language back to about the 10th century. We have the Kirbit Kayafa inscription, which we can date to the 11th or 10th century. We have the Gezer calendar in the 10th century. Um, In 2005, a few more inscriptions were found at Tel Zayit, but even these only date to the 10th century. Now, I'm throwing out dates, and listeners, you might be going, well, that seems pretty far back. And it is. It's 3,000 years ago. But the 10th century is what? The time of David? Mm -hmm. We don't have actual written examples that, before that, Hebrew as a language, as we would understand it, exists. Now, I'm not saying they spoke something completely foreign. It would be a precursor. But we need to recognize that if we go back to the story of Moses, Moses, when he's talking to Pharaoh is probably not speaking biblical Hebrew. Abram mm. is not speaking biblical Hebrew. Um, and so if the language didn't exist that far back, we can say, all right, it's probably not Hebrew. They're speaking in the garden. It's probably not any language that anyone speaks. Because that would make sense. Why would God preserve the one language when he divided everyone else's language? Mm. Now, I will say, I'm going to throw this out there. and So this is a position I don't hold. But there are going to be parts of the church that could make this argument. If you want to say that the language of the garden still exists today, it would be for those that hold to the gift of tongues and ecstatic speech, that what people speak mm. in these uh, occurrences, I don't want to say trances, I, I, don't, I don't want to you know, make it pejorative, but if you say I have the gift of tongues and I go into times where I'm talking, I don't really understand what I'm saying... You could make the argument that that maybe is the original language of the garden. It is a example of the first fruits of new creation breaking into the sinful world, a foretaste of what's going to come. As I said, that's not my position, but you could make an argument that that is what the gift of tongues is at times when we don't understand what it is. It's the original language. But interesting question. Sorry, I don't have like a a nice answer uh, it's probably not Hebrew, probably not any language that we speak today. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, just just a couple of things. One, to, to what you said about the heavenly language, I think it's so interesting as we read the book of Acts, uh, the idea of speaking in tongues really seems to be an intentional reversal of what we see at the Tower of Babel or Babel. Yes. Um, so that basically, as the gospel goes forth, uh, the curse that we see God enact at Babel Uh, Is reversed so that now the gospel is able to overcome the barrier of uh, the linguistic barrier of there being different nations, and so even from a a a standpoint of uh, historical kind of redemptive history, I think that is significant in Acts chapter two. But I will say,
1: sorry, just to jump in, yeah. In Acts, though, everyone is hearing their own language, so they aren't talking about ecstatic speech, which is what I was talking about. But sorry, just wanted to put that clarification out there.
0: No, no, that's, that's a good point. And, and that, I think, speaks to the idea of, okay, is there, you know, we, we could even turn the question on its head and say, is there a heavenly language that one day we will all learn, um, at which point perhaps that maybe was a reflection of the Edenic language. Um, mm-hmm. But but to me, Brian, here's, here's an interesting point. As we read through, uh, say, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we consider uh, the words of say Adam and Eve as they're recorded. What's fascinating is is that some aspects of, of what say Adam says uh, it really does depend upon the the play in Hebrew words. So that man is Ish, and then he sees the woman and he says she is Ishah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we think about that, uh, that doesn't. That doesn't mean, and I think to your point, that doesn't mean, well, oh, it's a slam dunk. That means that they spoke Hebrew. No, but what it does mean is that the Hebrew text that we have seeks to preserve the idea that in uh, in Adam's mind, there was ish and there was isha, meaning there was man and there was woman. They were like each other, but they were different. and in, in other words, the Hebrew text preserves something uh, that is incredibly important, and even the Hebrew words that are used uh, are, are incredibly important, even in how we're supposed to see male and female, uh, but that doesn't Prove that somehow they spoke Hebrew, and that all languages are are descendant of Hebrew. There just doesn't right. seem to be the the etymological evidence that that's true.
1: Because that connection exists even in other languages, right? Right. Uh, in English, we have men and women, right? They're connected terms. And this right. maybe gets back, and this is deeper than we'll we'll need to go. So I'll just make a quick comment. But this maybe gets back to our literary theory on what even is language. And I think as Christians, we say language is something that comes from God. Words are not arbitrary, but mm-hmm. do connect to reality in some significant way. And so that we see things that like, yes, even if they weren't speaking Hebrew in the garden, those words are connected somehow to reality and can be preserved in other languages as well. And so that that gets into literary theory and is language as a social contract and um We don't necessarily need to go there, but uh, I I think, Tim, you you bring up a good point. What's being preserved in the text is something that comes from God and is communicating his truth, regardless of what language they were originally speaking there. Yeah.
0: Well, and Brian, if someone wants us to to take a deep dive in those things, just send us another question, and then we can (laughs) take it at that point. There you go. There
1: you go. All right, let's move on to our second question, Tim, and this one's for you. David is called a man after God's own heart. And yet, as we read through the life of David, boy, that is hard to square because the Old (laughs) Testament is honest, brutally honest at this man's shortcomings. So Tim, maybe help unpack this for us. How can the Bible say that David, a sinner with some really nasty sin on his record, how can he be a man after God's own heart?
0: yeah, th- this is one of those labels that uh, that comes to us and and immediately it's it's very interesting, isn't it, Brian, that we almost immediately associate David with being a man after God's own heart. And mm-hmm. uh, just to to give the references here, we're talking about uh, what Samuel says actually to Saul of all things in first Samuel uh-huh. thirteen. Yeah. He tells him the Lord has found a man after His own heart, and so if we're going to try and read it contextually the best we can, uh, the point at least there in First Samuel thirteen is God is seeking a man. Uh, who is not going to elevate himself above the level of servanthood and obedience in terms of kingship, but rather God is going to find a man who is willing to serve humbly as a king, as someone, and we're going to see this in a moment, as someone who's willing to shepherd his people and put the needs of God's people ahead of his own. And so, In its immediate context uh it's really meant to be a contrast saul Mm -hmm. is not a man after god's own heart saul seems to be a man who begins to do what's right in his own eyes and that indictment of course is is very biblical in terms of the period of the judges uh but as we think about this it's in contrast to Saul that that David is said to be a man who follows after God or who has God's uh who has God's plan and purposes in mind. And then it's very interesting that as David is introduced in the book of 1 Samuel, he's introduced as I mentioned as a shepherd who cares for his sheep. And it's that shepherd's heart of putting the needs and the protection and the safety of the sheep ahead of his own needs uh, that, that we see really David shine. Uh, I, I think that's a, a good illustration of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. It means to be a man who puts God's purposes uh, ahead of our own, to allow God to dictate what is most important and uh, to play our role in the unfolding story of God's redemption. Uh, but actually, Brian, I think it's even deeper than that. I think that the, the, the negatives, the, the, the sort of falling apart of David's life, actually makes most sense uh, in that same vein. In other words, it's by seeing how David was a man after God's own heart that we begin to see why his uh, sin with Bathsheba and why his folly was so devastating. And, and here's what I mean by that. Of course, the sin with Bathsheba, and then, uh, and then the many other things that we see later in David's life in terms of his uh, parenting, and in, in terms of his passivity. As we look to the beginning of that downfall, we see what? That David, who is a king, he no longer is putting the interests of his sheep ahead of his own. But now he takes a wife that is not his own. He essentially uh, over his authority and in one sense begins to fall in the path of Saul so that uh, his sin is actually a straying away from what it was that, that really made him outstanding in the beginning. And mm. we see that most vividly in Nathan's response to David, right? He uses the analogy of a sheep and a shepherd. He, he uses the analogy of someone taking a sheep that doesn't belong to him. And so uh, on the one hand, I think we can see, and as you, you mentioned, this is so important, the Old Testament doesn't pull its punches. The Old Testament gives us the vivid pictures of success as well as the vivid pictures of failure. But I actually think that it's because David was described as a man after God's own heart that we see why his downfall was really so tragic. And so um, David is referred to as a servant of God, but at the end of the day, even the greatest of God's servants in the Old Testament are deeply, deeply fa- flawed men and women, and so uh, I think the broadest approach is the best. A man after God's own heart is a servant who submits to his will, but of course David's folly is that eventually he allowed his own will and his own passions to take over, uh, which is of course a warning to us. So Brian, feel free Uh jump in here and uh, and add to it your perspective. Yeah,
1: that's really well put, Tim, and I, I think that's really helpful as to what the Bible's meaning. And, and I might just add one more thing, because this is a label brought up in contrast with Saul, and that's why I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you put David and Saul side by side and list out their sins, David has the longer list, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, I've thought about this sometime, and I've had students go, what gives? I mean... Saul, his main folly, the one that costs him the kingdom, is he wants to look good in the eyes of his people. Well, that's an understandable fault, right? Mm-hmm. He's disobeying God, but let's not throw him under the bus. He didn't do something all of us have been tempted to do, right? We like to look good. We like people to like us. Mm-hmm. It's in that vein that right Samuel comes to him and says, well, God's going to find someone that is after his own heart. And I think one of the important lessons I take out of these two kings is their reaction to sin. Mm. Saul yeah. never repents. Yeah, Saul just goes, no, 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 Samuel, please just come with me. Let the people see me with you one last time. Right? He tears uh, Samuel's robes, trying to bring him back. There's no repentance there. He's still trying to look good in the eyes of his people. David sins greatly. Mm-hmm. And when confronted with it, he repents greatly. And so I I think there's an interesting thing there. A man after God's own heart doesn't mean a sinless person. That's not what God meant, because none of us can be that. But it is going to be someone that, when confronted with their sin, owns it, repents, and and accepts the consequences, which David has to do, right, with both Bathsheba uh, and later with his parenting, with numbering the kingdom. Uh, There are consequences for his sin, but he doesn't run away from it much like Saul did. Uh, and so I've always kind of factored that in. But I really like, too, what you said. It's someone who shepherds God's people. And it's a reminder that David has called this near the beginning of his reign. Uh, and it, we shouldn't necessarily take this as a carte blanche of, at all times, David is a man after God's own heart. So really good points, Tim. Thank you so much.
0: Well, and, and Brian, I'm glad you brought up the repentance factor, because that's so true. Um, and, and again, uh, I don't think the, the point is to say, well, we're David or we're Saul or whatever to immediately equate ourselves. But what a warning to us, right, that it's possible mm. to begin well, uh, but to end poorly. And, and yet it's so amazing. And again, this is something that we love about the Old Testament is that we see vivid failure. And yet we see humble repentance. And there is no moment in the Old Testament when there's true repentance that God doesn't offer incredible mercy. And uh, so that shows us truly the heart of God. And David Mm -hmm. was someone who, in one sense, experienced the heart of God in ways uh, that that were absolutely profound because he did experience that forgiveness and grace. So praise the Lord. Brian, let me throw our last question for this episode— uh, and this this might be a little bit of a trick question. So uh, <laughs> I, I know you're on your toes, and I, I know you've thought about it. How many books are there in the Old Testament?
1: Yeah, so this, uh, I like how you phrased it as a trick question. Um, it's a question that if you hadn't <laughs> thought about it before, you might hear it go like, what are they, silly? Like, just pick out your Bible and count. <laughs> There's 39 books. Come on, it's simple. Uh, and by the way, yeah, so there are 39 books if you have a Protestant Bible. In the Old Testament. Easiest way to remember it, there's a simple trick. How many letters are there in Old? Three. How many letters are there in Testament? Nine. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There you go. And if you remember, there's 66 total. You can do the math. There's 27 in the New. Anyway, (laughs) a simple enough question, but not a simple question, actually, because it depends on who we're reading and how we're counting books. So there's an agreed-upon canon and then there is a second canon, a Deutero canon, as it were, uh, when it comes to the Old Testament. If you are a Protestant, and so that's someone reading like the ESV, the, the King James or New King James, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, any of those, you're going to have twenty, uh, sorry, 39 books in your Old Testament. If you pick out the Hebrew Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, we sometimes mistakenly call it, right, Tim, the Torah. Uh, but the Torah technically is just the first five books. The entire collection is called the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. If you count those books up, there are only twenty-four books. And you might go, "Uh-oh, there's a difference here." It's a it's a fake difference, though. The Tanakh is the exact same collection of books as the thirty-nine in the Protestant Old Testament. We just number them differently. For example, we have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. However, they just have Samuel, Kings. These books are collected. The biggest reason for the number difference actually comes down to the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets, each getting a book in the Protestant Old Testament. However, in the Tanakh, we have something called the Book of the Twelve, it's a single book that contains all twelve minor prophets, right? And this makes sense if you remember that these were originally scrolls. Would you rather twelve really small scrolls hanging around and, and maybe getting lost, <laughs> right, in your uh, in your place of worship, or would you rather one medium-sized scroll? Well, one medium-sized scroll makes sense. Mm. Anyway, so the Tanakh you've got twenty-four books. These are the exact same as the Protestants' thirty-nine in the Old Testament. These books, because we're about to talk about two other collections, these books are agreed upon. So no person in the mainline Christian traditions, so that's Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, no one disputes these books as being the Old Testament. But we do, if we are Catholic or Orthodox, have some other books in our Old Testament. And so let's let's briefly enumerate those. So we have more in the Catholic Old Testament and even more in the Orthodox Old Testament. And these are what we can call the deuterocanonical books. Deutero meaning second, right? The second canon books. Now, we often will call these, as Protestants, the Apocrypha. I'm going to encourage you listeners, if you want to debate and talk about these books, don't call them the Apocrypha. That means the, the, the false writings or it's being written by someone other than what the book claims is being written by. Um, don't use that term because it's not helpful. It's not precise. Catholics talk about apocryphal writing. When they use that term, though, they're referring to books that they do not include in their Old Testament, and they use the term deuterocanonical books to refer to the ones that they do keep. So just for a sake of clarity and debate, and it's very important, right, that we have clear terms here, uh, I'm going to use the term deuterocanonical or second canon books, even though I personally will not ascribe them to my Bible. I don't think they're inspired. I don't think they're inerrant. So hopefully that's That's helpful. Tim, am I clear so far? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when we look at the Catholic Old Testament, there are 46 books. So seven more books than the Protestant Old Testament. Um, These books are the books of Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Baruch, and then there are some extra chapters added to other books. So they aren't new books, but like, for example, if you go to the book of Daniel— Daniel has two more chapters now. Um, and some really fun stories in there, by the way. Bell and the dragon is one <laughs> of them, which yeah. I had to deal with, Tim. I don't know if you know this. I had to deal with it in my dissertation. Um, oh, because, because it's of the st- dragon, and uh, is, it, is it because of some connections with Job? Uh, it's actually when Daniel is in the lion's den, an angel takes Habakkuk to go bring him food
0: in, oh, in that story. okay, okay, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Even though
1: they live several hundred years apart, We aren't going to let that stop us. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) um, so the Catholic Old Testament has 46 books. So there's those seven additional ones. When you look to the Greek Orthodox or the Orthodox's Old Testament, it's tricky to pin down because of how we divide books. So much like in Hebrew, where we sometimes combine books, so it's just the book of Samuel instead of First and Second Samuel, you'll see numbers from the Orthodox Old Testament between 49 and 54. They aren't different collections. It's just... How are we numbering these, right? Um, We're going to add in books like 3rd and 4th Maccabees. Catholics only include the 1st and 2nd one, but there are actually four books. Orthodox Church keeps all those. You have 1st Esdras. Um, So you have some additional books that the Catholic Church would call Apocrypha. Hence, we don't use that term when talking about their seven books. Hmm. Now, maybe just broadly, um, what do we do, especially someone like me who is a Protestant who doesn't think they're biblical— Uh, What do I do with them? Well, I don't think they're inspired for a variety of reasons that we could get into sometime. But I also want to say that doesn't necessitate that they're heretical or even unhelpful to read. Hmm. These books all come from what we call the 400 silent years, the, the years between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. They include the reflections of very devout Jews trying to figure out life. Where is God in the world? How do I keep being a follower of him? They record history. So the book of Maccabees, especially, I want to highlight, those mm-hmm. books talk about the Maccabean revolution. This happens around 80 years before the birth of Christ, and it's a highly important. Um, Tim, I don't know if you agree with me, I think you need to understand the Maccabean revolution to really get all the nuances of Jesus' story. Because this is a time in history where the Israelites, for the first time in a long time, overthrow an oppressor. You have a charismatic leader who leads them in driving off the infidels. Yep. This guy's name was Judas. Judas Maccabeus. Do you wonder why Jesus has a disciple named Judas? Well, he's named for a folk hero. This is also why so many people, when Jesus two disciples. marches... Oh yeah, Judas, I'm sorry. I'm It's late in the day, I'm losing my mind. Yeah, right. You're named for a folk hero. This is a great person to be named after. This is also why when you have Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem, everyone's like, all right, let's get the swords, right? We are going to go to war. We're going to kick Roman butt and drive them out. And there's so much shock and dismay when Jesus intentionally does not engage in this political power struggle because everyone looked at Judas Maccabeus and going, this is maybe what the Messiah is going to look like a charismatic Mm -hmm. military leader. So all that to say, these books I don't think are biblical in the sense of that they are inspired and inerrant, but I would encourage you, if you've never read them, go read them. They are interesting. They've been included and kept by the church throughout history as helpful readings from that time. Approach them with a grain of salt, but I I think they're kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. No, Brian, thank you for walking us through that and, and these are the kinds of things where if, if you haven't heard them before, you know Brian, I don't know if you've experienced this for some people I, I think it be, can be a bit disconcerting you know to know that there's disagreements among Christian traditions about these things um, but to try and simplify and it's it's more complicated than this but here's here's a couple of things that I've found helpful. Um, the first thing is as we think about even the Protestant Bible, we, we refer to that, it's not that the Protestants weren't aware of these other writings, they were, and in some cases even translated them into English, um, but it's, it's the fact that they were aware of them, but they determined that they didn't believe they were Scripture, and the most basic reason, and to me the most compelling reason uh, that I think they were right, is that because the Jewish people who wrote those texts did not consider them to be Scripture, so when, when we look at our Protestant canon and when we consider, okay, well, what is included in the, New, or in the Old Testament, we can simply say, well, I agree with the Jewish people whose Bible it is, that the mm-hmm. Old Testament books that we consider to be inspired and canonical are the exact same books that the Jewish people even today consider to be inspired and canonical. Um, and, and the illustration that, uh, that I, I try to use to, to help people understand this is, in one sense, it's the relationship, say, between the documents that we have uh, in the United States, the United States Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence. Uh, those are ratified official documents that were adopted and viewed by everyone as authoritative. Um, you have the Federalist Papers, that are incredibly important for their historical perspective At times, they even help us understand what did the authors mean when they wrote the Constitution. Uh, But we aren't bound by the Constitution in any sense, even though the Federalist Papers help us to understand it. So there there are other real-world examples where we can say, hey, there are certain documents that we say are inspired and and are given by God, but there are other documents, as, as Brian mentioned, that are helpful and arguably, as he mentioned with the books of Maccabees, even necessary to fully grasp the the dynamics of what's going on in the New Testament. So uh, lots lots to go there. Brian, do you want to you want to add anything else to that before we close? Well, just
1: one plug because Tim, I think you're right. Oftentimes, we can if we've never heard this before, we go is the church hiding things from us? And the answer <laughs> is no. If right? you go and study, we have always translated and kept and preserved these texts. Um, but handled them as, hey, look, these are helpful. These are maybe even significant, but they aren't the Bible. And that shouldn't right. be a problem. I, I would hope all of us as Christians are not only reading the Bible. We read other things around it to help us understand it. If anyone is looking to actually go see the historical information for themselves, a book came out about five years ago called The Biblical Canon Lists from Early Christianity. It's put out by Edmund Gallagher and John Mead. Um, it's a helpful walkthrough if you want to see how the church has always handled these texts, how we have preserved, as Tim said, the Jewish canon of what they accepted as authoritative, as the Old Testament in the Protestant tradition. Um, so just I encourage you, if you find it interesting, look at that. Go see the information for yourself because it's out there. There's no attempt to hide or right kind of like there uh, make texts secret or kept <laughs> away.
0: It's all out there and all there for you to go and see. Brian, I'm really glad you mentioned that because th- this is something that that uh, once you've once you've seen these things and and come to terms with them, all of a sudden you know the kind of secret books of the Bible or the hidden books of the Bible or the kind of you know conspiracy. Th- it, theories that are out there they they just don't have the same they they just don't have the same power why because they're total nonsense right i mean these these are things that have been well known uh and deeply considered for a very long time and so unfortunately sometimes uh sometimes people prey on on those who might not have a, a good level of awareness uh making trying to make some easy money honestly so um Brian, thank you so much, and uh, and next week we're going to have another episode of Q&A, but again, I'll give you the email address if you're interested in in sending your questions about the Old Testament. We love to do this. There are certain things that are interesting to us, but we want to know what's interesting to you, so if you'd like to email us or get in touch on Instagram or on Facebook, please do that. Our email address is in with the old podcast at outlook.com. We'd love to take your questions and answer them soon. Uh, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Brian. Uh, as always, we hope you stay in the word and we hope that you stay cool. Stay old.